0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Catalina De Onis, author of Energy Islands, Metaphors of Power, Extractivism, and Justice in Puerto Rico, published this year by University of California Press. Dr. De Onis, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: I'm a member of the U.S.-Puerto Rican diaspora, so I have many familial friendship and other ties to Puerto Rico. Uh, And as a result, a lot of care uh, and many connections to the archipelago, because Puerto Rico has the largest island, but then there are also surrounding smaller islands. And my main motivation for writing this book is because the importance of electric energy issues, politics and movements in Puerto Rico are very, very present. They make Front page headlines all the time. And there's great urgency in addressing these issues of life and death if we think about the unreliability of these transmission and distribution systems for electricity uh, and also the centralized infrastructure. As you know, when the power goes out, uh, there are very serious consequences with um, those who might rely on dialysis, who might rely on oxygen therapy. Who might need medication refrigerated and we could go on and on and thinking about uh, the importance of these issues and their very serious consequences. So for Puerto Rico, there are these two competing views for the energy present and future of this archipelago. So one dominant perspective is having these imported fossil fuels with some large solar farms that involve outside money that are not self-developed and directed by those who are most impacted. And then an alternative uh, to this dominant approach and this dominant advocacy is to have these solar community or solar comunitario projects, such as those advanced by Queremos Sol or We Want Sun, which is a proposal by civil society that argues for demand management, distributed rooftop solar and battery energy storage systems that are installed by and imagined by local community members um, that is also part of the process of making PREPA, that's the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, accountable to everyday people. So you can see these very different uh, perspectives on how to move forward. And that was very much motivating for me to try to address the complexities of that in this book.
0: Great. And the book has a a series of personal interludes, which you call roots slash roots slash raíces. So that's roots as in roads, roots like the bottom of a plant, and then the Spanish word for roots uh, in that second sense. And in one of those, you mentioned that you had previously written a book about Puerto Rico and decided not to publish that one. And I thought you made a great illustration of how you're thinking through your ethical responsibilities to the people and the place that you're researching. So could you tell us about your decision process there, and then why you decided that now you do want to publish a book about Puerto Rico?
1: This has certainly been a multi-year project with a lot of complexities to it. And I'll begin with talking about this roots, routes, raices, sections, or these sections that I offer in the book. So uh, in terms of origins, Dr. Dana E. Powell, authored Landscapes of Power, which is an energy studies book attending to the Diné people's experiences, particularly in New Mexico with different energy issues. And I was really moved in her text by how she had these reflections on her field work. And I thought that that also might be something appropriate for me to do, given the ethnographic and autoethnographic interests and enactments that I had with this book. And then also roots and routes have been concepts explored in communication and island and archipelagic studies, often with brief references or thinking about them in theoretical senses. And so I wanted to delve more deeply into what these terms and concepts could offer, including by adding raices, the Spanish translation for these words, uh, particularly because of the importance of that. Uh, Spanish language context and my family background. So there is uh, a roots, routes raíces, where I do discuss, as you mentioned, my decision not to publish an earlier version of this book, uh, which was much different uh, in terms of content in many ways. So to help understand this decision-making process, I began research for this project in 2014 when I was a PhD student, and then ultimately completed my dissertation in April 2017, and that was several months before Hurricane Maria hit in September 2017. So before Maria, I had certainly done a lot of thinking about my positionality as someone who lives in the U.S. diaspora uh, and someone who was thinking about theory and practice and possibilities for praxis that could imagine academic and non-academic collaborations From a coalitional perspective. So that might involve the clicktivist actions of signing a petition or maybe creating a petition, uh, co-authoring perhaps, ensuring that community members who I was writing about had the opportunity to review the work that I had just written so I could receive their input. And as Hurricane Maria hit, I had all these additional opportunities and felt a great urgency to communicate my research to a variety of audiences. So I shifted from struggling to think about if there was enough practice of the theories that I was talking about and just ultimately deciding that, no, this wasn't the time. I hadn't had enough immersion in energy politics and energy communication in the Puerto Rican context to really write a book that I thought was ethically in line with what I wanted to communicate and be able to share with the world. Um, Two, then this great urgency, as I was saying, with Hurricane Maria and all these possibilities for collaboration in terms of shifting dominant narratives, trying to disrupt these mainstream master stories that reduce Hurricane Maria only to an event, rather than part of several centuries-long experiences of trauma, including with environmental racism and really trying to give more depth to the story and actually shifting it to think about how could tenacious community resistance and refusal of ongoing violences be highlighted? What did that look like? Uh, And then what were some of the ways that academics and non-academics as well were coming together throughout the U.S. diaspora, uh, throughout many parts of the world, uh, to try to address these tremendous urgencies and the hardships, the suffering, Uh, that had resulted uh, in particular from Hurricane Maria, that, again, is part of this much longer narrative arc of what I call energy coloniality in the book. So as I then started to think about the importance of timing and exigency and getting these stories out and mobilizing to ensure solar generators were sent to Puerto Rico and doing a variety of fundraising efforts, uh, it really was clear to me that perhaps there was something that I could offer this time that I couldn't offer before in terms of coalition building. So what happens in these experiences of prolonged trauma that unfortunately sometimes get characterized as just an event, but actually are far more than that. So for me, then it was really important to share the story to a larger audience, which was different from how I had felt before. Uh, particularly in this effort to think about energy and power in ways that enable both breadth and depth uh, as we consider their high stakes.
0: Great. So your book deals a lot with metaphors. So you're writing about an actual archipelago and actual energy systems there, but also about the ways that archipelagos and energy work as metaphors to shape what's happening. So why are metaphors so important?
1: In many cases I think they often go unexamined or underexamined as they're used in our everyday talk. They are pervasive and they play a very large role in constituting or shaping how we, you know, in our different communities uh, and individually understand the world in various situated contexts. So I think by looking at metaphors carefully and all that they might communicate, we have opportunities then to think about how selecting one metaphor rather than another can shape different realities and experiences so we might think about the use of the language of setting boundaries with technology well the use of boundaries can result in entirely different ways of thinking about a topic than if we were to use a different type of metaphor for example so i'm hoping that this very focused attention on metaphors will encourage people from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of interests, to really think about in everyday uses how do we use metaphors, what might be their consequences, who's using metaphors in a particular way, to really think more carefully and critically because as I argue in the book uh, there are some serious implications for how we communicate in these different contexts.
0: Okay. And uh, another one of the things that your book does is to challenge this simplistic narrative that we often hear where insiders or local people are always good and right, and then outsiders are always bad or wrong. Uh, And so one of the notable illustrations of that that you talk about is this Twitter exchange between the then Governor Roseo and Elon Musk. So could you summarize uh, that particular incident and then talk about what that shows us about energy development in Puerto Rico?
1: Yes, so there was this Twitter exchange in 2017 following Hurricane Maria um, between the head of Tesla, so Elon Musk, and then former governor Ricardo Rosselló. And I should say that Rosselló was ousted uh, in these widespread popular uprisings in summer 2019 from his governorship. So as I'll I'll talk a little bit later about transforming power again in all forms, it's important to note uh, that he is no longer in office and the causes for for why he's no longer in office. But in this Twitter exchange, I argue in the book that it exemplifies how ideas that supposedly help can actually be harmful as they fail to transform power in all forms because they are replicating oppressive power relations. So in this Twitter exchange, you have Rosello. Uh, In conversation with Musk saying that taking Tesla technology, so power packs, thinking about um, solar panels and batteries uh, that Musk and his company have developed, scaling them up to fit Puerto Rico's very urgent energy needs could be, quote unquote, this flagship project uh, for Tesla. And so I trouble this in the book because it very much replicates these politics of experimentation using Puerto Rico as a laboratory for importing ideas. So in the book, I chart these different efforts throughout Puerto Rico's history to... Use experimentation as a form of exploitation in the archipelago. And this politics of experimentation also is linked to privatization and the selling off of Puerto Rico, treating it as this blank slate that's open for business. And what I argue in the book is that this exchange exemplifies, constitutes green capitalism that isn't transforming power in all senses of the word because it's relying on these techno fixes without social transformation. The money is going to outside companies. And we see the significance of this case replicated in various forms, including most recently with the Luma Energy takeover of Puerto Rico's electricity system. So this is a joint business deal with US and Canadian companies. And in the show notes, perhaps there can be a link to a a Georgetown Journal of International Affairs article that I recently co-authored with Dr. Hilda Llorenz about this deal. And this Luma Energy partnership, which uh, it can be called, or collaboration, uh, and of course, unpacking what these words mean and how they're functioning is very important. But why Luma is so harmful is because it takes command of the Puerto Rico energy grid and other key operations of PREPA. Again, that's the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. And it takes command for 15 years. Uh, different individuals who are rate payers or energy actors, as I call them in the book, are expecting to pay much, much higher bills. There are serious layoff concerns and uncertainty for the utilities unionized workers. And most recently, there have been several blackouts, including one uh, in early June that led to power loss for 800,000 people. And the Luma deal is about rebuilding existing infrastructure and reliance on imported fossil fuels. And as I spoke about at the beginning of the interview, these really are life and death issues and consequences when we think about power outages and who's disproportionately impacted, particularly those in the southeast uh, of the largest island are very vulnerable to these outages, even though they in their communities are generating um, the greatest percentage of power for those then up in the north. And this Luma deal extends past deals with no-bid private contracts, such as with Whitefish Energy. And it really is part of this ongoing story of energy coloniality, who has energy privilege and who doesn't. So who can escape, you know, having these outages, who's facing the disproportionate impacts of these centralized fossil fuel plants with imported hydrocarbons, uh, and then who is experiencing the environmental racism that results. So this is all part of a very concerning energy landscape and waterscape to think more in archipelagic terms of all the interconnections of power and all the ways that uh, these dominant systems need to be resisted and are being resisted by many energy actors today.
0: Yeah, and so then the kind of opposite side of the coin there is that you talk about work that you did with a network of other scholars and advocates located in the mainland United States to support energy justice in Puerto Rico. So, could you talk about what were some of the notable accomplishments that uh, you had with that network and how did you navigate your ethical responsibilities to the people that were actually living uh, on the islands?
1: Yes, thank you for that question. In thinking about these different struggles over energy and energy politics and energy movements, there's a concept that I develop in my book called Archipelagos of Power. So thinking about different groupings or different individuals as these different islands and how different actors can come together to constitute what we might imagine as archipelagos or these different interconnections or relationalities. And so as I discuss in the book, these can be oppressive as the previous example with Musk and Rosselló exemplifies, and they hopefully can lead to alternatives that are more liberatory as well as we think about all the possibilities of considering this archipelagos of power concept. And so during the Hurricane Maria aftermath, I was very um, fortunate and very happy to Collaborate with a number of individuals who care deeply about the tremendous suffering um, that many people were experiencing in Puerto Rico. So I have a colleague, Dr. Alaires Santos, whose work and organizing uh, in Oregon has been very inspiring. And by work, I mean her uh, academic contributions and her book, Our Caribbean Kin, where she talks about a family of islands. So how Transcolonial solidarities rooted in shared experiences uh, can actually lead to a strong, tenacious refusal um, against these oppressive systems, these oppressive structures. And so um, in really thinking about coalitional politics uh, and ways to support ethically these different efforts that don't just replicate kind of an outsider knows best approach, I really was inspired by Dr. Diaz Santos' work. Uh, And then she, on the ground in Oregon, was contributing um, to many efforts to shift dominant narratives about Puerto Rico, uh, to try to fundraise, Um, and so her efforts were were deeply inspiring uh, in thinking about how to build uh, these different coalitional networks or an archipelago or archipelagos of power. So she uh, and I and other professors in Oregon were all in conversation about how we could join together to address the most pressing issues uh, at the moment for our Caribbean kin, uh, to use her term, in Puerto Rico. And then also in Salem, Oregon, where I was living at the time, there were a number of radio and fundraising efforts that occurred, uh, radio to, again, try to shift uh, the dominant narrative that was being told by mainstream media that was only... Uh, trauma-centric, uh, that didn't recognize the agency and self-determination capacities of local people. And then also there were some collaborations uh, between uh, my colleagues in Rhode Island, Dr. Hilda Yorens and Dr. Uh, Carlos Garcia-Quejano. Um, and so their work in Rhode Island uh, also involved some of my collaborative energies in terms of ordering and paying for solar generators that could be sent uh, to southeastern Puerto Rico in the Salinas and Guayama area, collaborative writing projects, including sharing testimonios testimonios or uh, testimonies uh, of those living through the consequences of Maria, and then also doing interviews when folks reached out to us from different media outlets, always to the extent that we could, given communication barriers, trying to center and amplify Uh, the voices of those most impacted. So trying very much not to speak for, unless there was an opportunity where we needed to speak for necessity, where we uh, had to speak for uh, in a way that was uh, in conversation with different individuals most impacted. And just in thinking about these archipelagos of power, uh, I do draw on the work of professors Maria Lugones and Gatama Chavez, who frame coalitions as horizons of possibility. And I note that coalitions can be shorter or longer in duration, and that really depends on the situation. And also the actors involved can also shift. And so I think it's important to note that in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Maria, there were all these coalitional efforts that occurred. And in many ways, some of them persist to this day. So for example, in my book, I talked about how Dr. Llorens and I are still very much part of these coalitional collaborative efforts Uh, and one way that we can see that happening is our work serving as informal uh, advisors to community lawyer and activist Ruth Santiago who is chronicled in the book. she's the member of she's a member of the recently created White House environmental Justice advisory Council. So at times she'll have research questions or ask us to review drafts. So that's just one way that we might think about these archipelagos of power sustaining themselves and continuing beyond beyond just an event-based sort of response but really thinking about for the long haul what are these, coalitional
0: possibilities. Yeah, it's good to hear about this sort of work continuing on in the long term uh, like that. So in your conclusion, you talk about what you call the four Ds of energy justice, which are decarbonizing, decentralizing, democratizing, and decolonizing. So could you tell us what each of these things mean? And then uh, also, I think you make an important point that we need to have all four of them together uh, at the same time that any one of those four Ds on its own uh, is insufficient to move towards energy justice.
1: This is the concluding chapter of my book. And I wanted to talk a little bit first about decarbonizing and move through those those other uh, three Ds to make up the four here. So in the book, I talk about decarbonizing both in the literal and figurative sense. So Yes, there's the urgent need of shifting from high to low greenhouse gas emitting technologies and infrastructure. And there's also the importance of um, decarbonizing in the sense of trying to transform polluted politics. So there's a lot of corruption at the colonial uh, territory level in Puerto Rico, and among local politicians and U.S. fossil fuel companies and some U.S. based uh, collaborators who, you know, are you know, advocating for continuing to rely heavily on, on imported fossil fuels, especially imported methane gas in the form of uh, LNG for Puerto Rico. So really thinking about decarbonizing not only in the literal sense, but also addressing these polluted politics. And moving on to a second D, that would be decentralizing both in the literal and figurative sense. So centralized power plants have proved to be disastrous uh, in Puerto Rico in terms of the consequences uh, when earthquakes occur. And also um, the wires and poles with more traditional uh, forms of um, transmission and distribution also have proven to be disastrous during hurricanes. So Thinking about what are possibilities when these infrastructures are decentralized and not um, in such centralized uh, areas or relying on these connections with centralized plants. And then also thinking about decentralizing in terms of power. So how to spread power among civil society to resist top-down approaches to have what Professor Gustavo García López calls these politics from below, so thinking about this decentralizing um, with power broadly understood in multiple ways. The third D is democratizing, and this is from a perspective that understands colonialism as having very present-day effects and how imperialism shapes and curtails different experiences in Puerto Rico. So a liberal democracy, you know, advocacy or understanding is is very much limited in Puerto Rico with the way voting occurs. So Puerto Ricans are not allowed in the archipelago itself, are not allowed uh, to vote in the U.S. presidential election. They do have a representative in Congress. Uh, This individual does not have voting power. So we can see serious limits of, you know, assuming that liberal democracy can kind of function well in Puerto Rico, it's not available, and then thinking well beyond, you know, what are the possibilities of this this liberal democracy, uh, it's important to think about democracy from from a broader perspective, or what can it mean, you know, beyond this framing. And part of doing that requires that we be wary of dominant U.S.-based assumptions And also, just this idea of seeking to increase more democratic deliberations and decision-making with the state, because as scholars um, like Lisa Marie Gaucho and uh, Dr. David Fellow talk about, trying to collaborate with the state can be a huge waste of energy, particularly for communities that are devalued, that are marked as expendable. So then that creates the urgency to think about direct democracy. So what might be some other spaces where direct democracy can be practiced? So thinking about grassroots community meetings, thinking about these alternative structures where, as we saw in 2019, civil society rose up to say that they had had enough, uh, trying to imagine a different future. So that's an Important uh, piece, I think, as we consider kind of dominant understandings of democracy and, and what are the alternatives. And then the fourth D is decolonizing. And I argue, uh, in conversation uh, with other decolonial scholars, that this should not be reduced to a metaphor. We must recognize concrete material struggles for land, water, and self determination. And so, in the book, I feature a group called La Colectiva Feminista en Construcción, or the Feminist Collective in Construction, and they very much embrace and practice an intersectionality framework to guide the work that they do, because they are looking to transform power in all forms. So they're concerned that you know just a struggle for Puerto Rico's independence, you know, is certainly not enough if cis heteropatriarchy remains in place, um, if power largely remains unchanged except for, you know, changing Puerto Rico's colonial status. And then related specifically to energy issues, Dr. Arturo Mazoldella, who is the Casa Pueblo director in Arjuntas, Puerto Rico, he calls for energy independence. And he argues that the status quo, he argues this with many other people, isn't working. And so decolonization is a necessary piece Uh, To address what is an unsustainable, untenable situation. And he argues that energy independence is a path forward for which this can be imagined and implemented. And so your question had spoken to uh, the argument that I make in the book in terms of considering these four Ds together. And it's important to recognize that they have to be uh, struggled for simultaneously and are inextricable Uh, because to not do so risks replicating previous and ongoing oppressive and harmful relationships. So we might think about decarbonizing and decentralizing electricity. Uh, And my argument in the book is that this is insufficient if it just perpetuates green capitalism and relationships of dependency on outside companies while not advancing self-determination. And so those are huge loss opportunities and necessities for creating green jobs uh, and advancing community-envisioned and directed local solar projects. And then similarly, we might think, as I was suggesting before, you know, the decolonizing is insufficient if it replicates uh, cis-heteropatriarchy and other oppressive relations that don't help to advance the liberation of all people. So then for transforming power in all forms, the four Ds are needed together. Uh, and ultimately are inseparable and requires that we all think about how we use our individual and collective energies as we address these four Ds.
0: Great. Uh, So now I'd like to go from the conclusion of the book all the way back to the beginning and talk about the cover, uh, because you've got this really great image on it that was made by uh, Mabet Colom-Perez, one of the people that you worked with in your research. And I'll do my best to describe it, since we're an audio podcast here. So uh, at the top, you have a set of power transmission lines that's highlighted against a, a sunset sky. Then below that, there's a row of solar panels And then standing in front of them, there's six people with their arms around each other, and they're all wearing hard hats and shirts from Coqui Solar, one of the organizations that you talk about in the book. And then below that at the bottom, there's a map of Puerto Rico. So could you tell us a bit about who the artist is, what the image means, and why you chose it for the cover of the book?
1: Yes, so Mabel Colon Perez uh, is an undergraduate student who lives in Guayama, Puerto Rico. So that's um, this southeastern region that I've been referencing. And she lives very close to the Carbonera. That's a U.S.-owned coal plant. The U.S. company is AES. And as I talk about in the book, there's this very, very large pile, which doesn't really uh, adequately describe how large this coal ash uh, pile is. And uh, during Hurricane Maria, but just daily because of Caribbean breezes, um, this coal ash gets distributed uh, throughout the community, and there also have been active disposal efforts uh, throughout Puerto Rico, in Florida, and in the Dominican Republic to try to take care of uh, this very large coal ash disposal problem that the company has because it never created a place where it could dispose of the ashes. So this situation created a great deal of urgency for my bet, as she has noticed in her family and among community members how their health has been detrimentally impacted with the uh, local aquifer being impacted with elevated respiratory illnesses, cardiovascular illnesses that have been well documented by Puerto Rican scholars. And... She is using her art in a variety of ways to try to communicate these problems, but also these alternatives, uh, which I will talk about. So I'm very grateful to Vet for her contribution with this book cover. And so, as you were saying, this uh, book cover includes members of Copisolar. Um, So this is a grassroots project of the Iniciativa de Eco-Desarrollo de Valle de Hobos. Uh, So that's an eco-development initiative in Hobos Bay, a beautiful bay that also is very polluted by um, two of the largest island's uh, greatest uh, polluting plants and facilities. And that's according to the toxic release inventory of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, But anyway, so these individuals are responding to the urgencies in their community uh, that are rooted very much in environmental racism because most of the community members are of Afro descent. So they're Afro Puerto Ricans. And what they are trying to imagine and have been working on actively is how to have this distributed rooftop solar, how to potentially look at solar cooperative opportunities, how to empower local youth, uh, to have these opportunities to learn about energy and power development and taking command of their own uh, energy and electricity futures. And so for this cover, uh, it's actually a compilation of uh, an original photo and then of some of uh, Mabet Colon Paris's artistic um, offerings here. So... Um, what one interpretation could be potentially is a temporal one that blends together and blurs um, past, present, and future, revealing the fluidity and messiness of the situation. So the individuals who are depicted in the front cover are from an original photo that was taken at an event uh, that different group members uh, were able to participate at. And Um, Before getting to the image of those individuals, you can see in the background the setting sun over wires and poles that represent Puerto Rico's precarious transmission and distribution system. So mostly of the past, hopefully, uh, but still very much in the present. Then there's a large um, solar array. Um, which, as I've been arguing, can potentially deny uh, self-determination in many ways uh, if local community members are not in charge of these projects, if money does not stay locally. So that's part of the present push in addition to um, continued reliance on imported fossil fuels. And then as one moves more forward uh, through this image, one might be able to interpret this as an alternative present and future with Coquisolar collaborators looking forward and partially encircling the Puerto Rico archipelago in a position of care that's rooted in solar communities and imagining more just, livable, and sustainable futures. And a personal highlight of having this book be published is uh, sending many, many copies of the book to Puerto Rico and having a, a video that was sent to me of different collaborators looking at this front cover and pointing out you know, who they are and recognizing their colleagues uh, in the photo and sharing a lot of delight um, about their struggles and the fact that um, it's being documented and shared with more people. So, so that's been really wonderful to see.
0: Yeah, it's always great to hear about the reaction to the book from the people that the book is about. Uh, and so I'm glad that they they were so excited about the book and that, that image. Um, so to wrap up here, we always like to ask what you're working on next. What kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out?
1: In collaboration with this book and as discussed uh, in Chapter 4, Rewiring Coalition's Dr. Hilda Llorenz and I, uh, and her son, Khalil, and Mabet Colon Perez, who we were just talking about, who designed the book cover, who did the art for it. We've been working on this intergenerational project of creating a bilingual environmental justice children's book. It's called La Justicia Ambiental es para ti, para mí, or Environmental Justice is for You and Me. And this has been published by Puerto Rican publisher Editora Educación Emergente. And it's available in e-version for free download on the publisher's website. And then also physical copies are available um, for $15, I believe. And this project uh, has been um, a challenging one and also great fun in thinking about how to communicate with younger audiences these struggles. And in particular, Mabet talks about Her experiences growing up uh, in the southeastern community near the coal plant and also how she became an activist. And so we're really hoping that this book uh, will be persuasive, empowering, inspiring for younger folks to continue to get involved with these struggles. So that's a project that I am currently working on promoting and sharing with others. So that's been very exciting. And then also there's an energy justice scene in the works that I'm, I'm working on with a, a couple of individuals. So we hope to be able to share that with more audiences too, because an academic book is accessible uh, to some readers in English uh, and some individuals who are interested, but it's certainly not the only way to communicate these struggles. So that's what's next.
0: All right. Well, that all sounds, sounds great. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me. Okay. You just heard a conversation with Catalina Deonis, author of Energy Islands, Metaphors of Power, Extractivism, and Justice in Puerto Rico, published this year by University of California Press.